Hello, John Terrell here. Pull a chair up to the fireside at Chateau Cube, where we discuss life, limited magic, and cube draft. Today finds Andy Mangold joining us once again for the second part of the conversation that he and I had in late November. Andy has been working feverishly for the past several months on a new cube project. Earlier this week, he published an extensive primer to that format as an article on his website, Lucky Paper. He also chatted about it on the Lucky Paper podcast with his co-host, Anthony Maddox. I know Andy can't wait to share details of the cube with you, so let's dive in. I am delighted once more to welcome Andy Mangold to Chateau Cube. Maybe we can talk a little bit about what we think is useful and desirable in a way of coding cubes or in developing a shared language that helps to identify cubes. So we've got the problem of identifying power level. That's one thing that obviously needs to be worked out. Another problem that's related is, for me, the power band that's acceptable in a cube. Do you have a very narrow power band whereby all of the decks should be sort of equally viable? Or do you have decks where there's a huge disparity in what I perceive the power level of the cards to be? So you've got a cube that has both flying men and soul ring in it. I mean, maybe there's a reason for that environment to exist. Well, that's a, that's, that could be the one drop cube right there you just described. Yeah, that's true. I think in the one drop cube, soul ring and flying men do coexist and are perfectly reasonable. It's not that soul ring is overpowered. That's true. And, and that's that's the thing that's wild about the recontextualization, right? Like you take, you look at this different context and all of a sudden soul ring, this card which is supposed to be universally broken in basically every format all of a sudden is like well if it's in a cube of all one drops you can only cast colorless spells or activate abilities with it so now this card is a build around you have a, you have turned soul ring into a build around I spent most of the summer working on a, a very different cube project, which we're recording this ahead of when I will be announcing this to the public, but is this podcast will come up contemporaneous with that and I, I've kind of filled you in on my my degenerate micro cube yeah. And I have used that example, that exact example, Soul Ring, before mm. in the one drop cube. And I'll point out that, like, actually, you need to actually understand this person's environment before you start criticizing the card choices because there is an environment where Soul Ring is not broken. And truthfully, though I have used that many times to make the point that cubes are all about context and there is no universal power level right that uh, that applies regardless of context i've always felt like that was a like i was a little bit of a cop-out right i was like i chose this really novel environment where you know soul ring happens to not be broken but like i know soul ring's pretty much always broken right like yeah. like i it, 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 it it's it's almost a little bit of a straw man to like bring up this example and point that out as, as why people can't make universal truths about cube and just kind of kind of speak about it very universally this cube I designed over the summer is one such environment, and it's, it's an environment where cards are radically recontextualized. And Soul Ring is a perfect example. I originally excluded Soul Ring from the cube because I thought it'd be too good. I thought it's just going to go in every deck and going to provide too much an advantage. And it turned out it wasn't too good. It's very good, but it is actually, just like it is in the one drop cube, a bit of a build around. You can't just put Soul Ring in any deck. There are some decks that don't have that much use for two colorless mana. I've come to feel like cube is this frontier where there 
there is so much unexplored space. So many cubes we have not built collectively as a community. And we've spent so much time in this little corner, you know, working on something between powered vintage cube and, you know, unpowered fair stuff cube, right? Like something on that spectrum. And then similarly for peasant and pauper. But then like outside of that, it's like what? Some set cubes. Some people have their own kind of interpretation between, you know, pauper and peasant where sort of things are landing. The amount of things we could be exploring about cube is just this unbounded space of potential that is very inspiring to me. Like I think it's I think it in an age of the internet where everything has been done 16 times and you, you can't make a unique joke to save your life. We are playing in this corner of this game that we have not even come close to touching the the boundaries of like uh, nowhere near that. I love seeing novel cubes. There's a host of um, desert cubes. Our friend Sefa has uh, one of these. And in this model, you have to draft the land. The only lands you can put in your deck are lands that you draft, right? You don't get to go to the land station. That's a novel spin on it. Our colleague Dan Schneider has his Devoid cube that's been uh, making waves. That's a super cool cube where everything's colorless or devoid or whatever. But I would love to hear more about the restrictions that you placed on this cube that you're designing, the Degenerate Microcube, and what uh, the impulse behind that is. So what are the restrictions and what are you trying to accomplish with those restrictions? The cube is structurally mimics a cube I read about years ago on the website Cardnock Life, and it was uh, basically a format invented by this guy named Max Hero. The, the format is as follows. You draft two packs of 10 instead of three packs of 15 from a 160-card cube instead of a, an n size cube, and then you build a 15-card deck instead of a 40-card deck. And the only rules modification is that you don't lose to drawing from an empty library. So you can't die to mill, basically. Um, and the original post about this I read years ago, and I thought it was interesting and kind of cool. I like put together a 160 card list. And I drafted a little bit and, you know, thought it was interesting. And just kind of had it on the back burner of my head. It's like something I might want to explore someday. At some point, uh, like a year ago, I was talking about two card combos in cube or something or talking about like, you know, very strong power outliers. And I was explaining why, you know, I didn't think dark depths or whatever was viable in a regular 60, 360 card cube you draft in 40 card decks. And it just came out of variance. And it occurred to me like, well, you know, the whole result of this environment of a 15 card deck where you start with half of your deck in your hand is just dramatically reduced variance. And it actually begins to mirror the consistency of a 60 card deck running you know, play sets of all the cards, uh, you know, 15 cards is a quarter of 60 cards, a singleton is a quarter of four cards. So um, it's actually more consistent than that for math reasons. So I started playing with the idea of making this degenerate microcube, a, a cube where it had the most broken, rude strategies imaginable and use that increased consistency to just do broken stuff. Turn one combos, you know, winning immediately, just, you know, all this kind of rude mess up things. And I didn't actually think it'd be that fun. I was just like, well, here's a here's a thing we can do with this environment. We ended up drafting a, a bunch of different novelty cubes. I mean, on Lucky Paper Radio, we've talked about the mono black cube. We uh, we drafted Anthony's Turbo Cube, which had this rules modification that made all spells and abilities cheaper and was totally preposterous. And the generate micro cube is in this kind of rotation of just let's draft weird cubes and see what happens. And the first time playing it was really it was really revelatory for me. First of all, it was way more fun than I thought it I, th I thought it was going to be. I really thought it would be kind of just like a novelty. Like we'll just play these ridiculous cards, do turn one combos, and then we'll have the story to tell about the time we, you know, channel and recall our opponent out or whatever. I didn't think it was going to be a rewarding environment with lots of replay value, but it was more fun and more interesting than I thought it was going to be. And more importantly, like the thing it really 
hit home for me is that a lot of people on the Discord got very excited about it. Not everybody. Some people were like, this is not for me. I'm out. Other people were like, this is fascinating and immediately became very invested in like theory crafting it with me and like, you know, twisting the knobs and fiddling with it. And, and really it was that enthusiasm that made me pursue it much further. And so like what it is today is a, what it what what it says on the tin. It's a degenerate microcube where, you know, you can turn zero, flash in a world spine worm and make three five five worm tokens with trample and threaten to kill your opponent on, you know, the next turn. Or you can channel Emrakul or you can do all these ridiculous things. But we found this environment to have so much replay value and that the disruption is actually totally fine to hang and keep up with all these broken combos. And uh, the result has been this environment that has been I have not played much constructed and I've not played any of it competitively, um, but I, I think the kind of experience we've had tuning this cube has been what brings people back to constructed in, in, uh, in formats, right? Because in constructed, like it's your your deck has a very particular plan, like a very particular plan. And the way it relates to your opponent's deck is very particular, right? There's certain cards that matter most in the matchup, certain cards that are dead in the matchup. And, and frankly, that's kind of rare and most limited because you don't really want to include cards in your cube that can be totally dead in some matchups. Like it's not a great look for most people in their cube. They're, most people are not trying to run such narrow cards. But because this environment is so hyper consistent you get to include cards like that all of a sudden and now the matchups are are very polarizing and the draft is very important because you have to draft with the idea of making sure you don't have dead matchups uh and it feels more like playing constructed and has been just very rewarding to explore and and yeah really it was just it was the excitement and enthusiasm of some of the players i was playing with that that made me kind of push this thing to its logical conclusion and exploring it has made me appreciate like i said how much unmapped territory there is in cube design because there are cards here that people have never heard of that are so, so good. Like Serene Remembrance this is a green sorcery that says shuffle Serene Remembrance and up to three cards from your graveyard into your library, which is awful everywhere else, right? When are you ever going to play a card that puts you down a card and shuffles in some number of cards from your graveyard? Like you're just not going to play that card. No, I don't remember this card at all. And I played a good bit of Return to Ravnica. Drive. I might be getting the set. No, no, no. No, I'm looking at it right now. You're right. Return to Ravnica Uncommon. It's just this card that is totally weird. Weird, but in this environment, it's one mana to never run out of resources. Like you get to the bottom <laughs> yeah. of your library and you can now just put whatever the best cards in your graveyard are back in your library and this card. And so for the very low mana investment, it recycles itself indefinitely and kind of guarantees you win any long grindy game. And that's the other thing is that like you would think games in this environment would all be super fast. And some of them are. Some games are over on turn one. It, it does happen. But some games are really, really grindy. Like when you have super fast, hyper powerful combos and also the best disruption available, you have all the free counter spells, you have all this kind of stuff. Oftentimes you have this powerful combo runs up against the disruption. They both cancel each other out. And now you're left in the ashes of well, what's left in my deck in hand now. How do I get my combo back to do it again? Or what's my fallback if my combo doesn't work? And you end up in this very grindy space. I mean, multiple times in this format, games have ended because a player kept on tapping their opponent's City of Brass with Rashad port until they were dead. Oh, wow. Oh, that's great. Which is a thing that you like hear about from the early days of magic, right? That like is that like icy manipulator was used to kill people with their own city of brass. And you're like, what a ridiculous thing. And yet that happens in this environment that is otherwise pushed to the extremes of power level, like in the same cube where you die on turn one to a channel number cool, you might die on turn 40 to having your own city of brass tapped by your opponents for shot port because your decks just ran out of gas. And that's where that game ended up, which it's, it's very it's still endlessly fascinating to me like, you know, five months into this, I'm still trying to figure out how to get my head around this format. That's cool. I feel like I'm already getting out in the weeds, but I'm, I'm sitting here looking at the list and having fun. Do it. Let's dive into the list. 
I'm, I'm looking at the planeswalkers and a lot of them make a ton of sense to me. You got the two, three mana lilies, you've got Oko. Kaya, I can even, like, that's making sense to me. I think one notable thing is it appears that there are no blue walkers or no mono blue walkers. I mean, Oko. So th that's curious. You might say something about that. And then interestingly in white, you've got Gideon of the Trials. I wonder if you might say a word about how he stacks up in this extremely broken high-powered environment that you've constructed here. Yeah, so I think the blue Planeswalkers is a really interesting point first. So one class of cards that ended up way worse than I expected in this environment, just way lower power level, is just cantrips, card selection, card advantage. The first version of the cube, of the cube included like Ponder, Preordain, and like all the suite of like powerful cantrips because I thought, wow, you know, these cards are good in regular magic, but here, Preordain looks at a third of your deck, right? Like it's, it's almost a demonic tutor. Like it, it stacks your deck, it finds whatever you want. Ponder is very similar. Uh, and I thought they'd be really, really good. And after weeks of playtesting, it was just very clear that you didn't want any air in your deck. You didn't want just a card that was only dedicated to drawing more cards because that just meant you were one lower on threats and disruption. And also, more importantly, I think, what those cards give you in 40-card singleton is, or 60-card constructed or whatever, is a lot of consistency. And in this environment, everybody gets a lot of consistency as, you know, table stakes, right? Yeah. You can pretty easily mulligan to whatever you need such that the turn one preordain is actually not that great because you already have whatever you needed in your hand. And so Ponder preordain ended up not being good enough. And a card that I thought for sure would be too good, Ancestral Recall, actually is totally fine here. We had a long discussion when we added Ancestral Recall, Recall to the cube, but whether or not you would take pack one, pick one, duress or Ancestral Recall. And there was a discussion about it. I still think it's Ancestral, but some other players think it's duress um, just because having pure card advantage is just kind of not worth a slot. And the Blue Planeswalkers basically all fall into the category of card advantage engines or ways that win through essentially milling your opponent out. That is not viable here. So there are there are no, uh, you know, Blue Planeswalkers because none of them really make the cut. The, I did have three mana Narset in there for a while because for a while I was trying to do the one-sided wheel thing where I had Storm supported, I had wheels, and so I had Narset and Leovolt. Ultimately, even that is just, all right, so you combined two three mana cards and didn't even win the game. You combined two three mana cards and all you did was put your opponent out of resources and, you know, up you on resources. Your opponent can just spend two mana on Flash or Channel and win the game. So why are you spending six mana and two cards to not win the game? Game, right it just it, it ended up being way too slow and you're maybe not even drawing seven at that point i guess right because you've got a 15 card deck right. and so maybe you're drawing i don't know what four cards or exactly yeah which is ultimately why i think storm didn't work out uh, which was kind of heartbreaking to me because one of my like bucket list cube design goals is i want to design some kind of cube where storm is consistently draftable and has a reasonable matchup against most of the field i think the way that storm breaks down in most cubes is that it is either consistently draftable and the best thing to do and so everyone just wants to be doing storm and anything else is kind of a liability or it's inconsistently draftable and so it's like like at the mtgo cube for example like when it comes together it's incredible but it rarely comes together so it's kind of this like you know story thing where maybe you can make it happen maybe you can't but this cube ended up not being that environment for reasons which are detailed but your question of gideon gideon is relative to most of the cards in the cube a relatively recent ad it's a card i overlooked at first completely but what gideon provides is i was looking for a win condition for 
four white control decks because balance is really, really good. I mean, balance is a good magic card in a lot of contexts, but it's really good here as an answer to any cheated threat that doesn't that gets around any kind of protection because they sacrifice the thing. So it doesn't matter if it's indestructible. It doesn't matter if it has effectively hexproof, like balance still hits it. So I wanted something that worked well with balance. So Planeswalker instead of a creature, basically. Uh, I wanted something that you could get back with Savin's Reclamation, which is that three mana sorcery that gets back a permanent mana cost three or less from your graveyard to the battlefield. And then it has flashback for four and a white. If you flash it back, you can get two permanents CMC three or less back from the graveyard to the battlefield. That's a card that has proven very effective. And so I wanted a win condition that could be recurred with Savin's Reclamation because that was pretty valuable. And then I also wanted a win condition that was more than just a win condition, had some other relevant board impact. And Gideon's plus the, you know, basically the pacification on a creature that it prevents damage it would deal is a really great answer to a lot of cheated threats. Uh, I mean, they put a big thing into play and it doesn't work against Annihilator, obviously. If they have an Eldrazi, you're going to be sacrificing your whole board still. But, you know, it, it does prevent you from dying to your opponent's Bystale Colossus or whatever and buys you time until you can eventually start attacking back with Gideon, who's also a win condition. Yeah, a win condition and also a very good defensive play because it's got that worship effect. I'm not even sure how good the worship effect is. It might be good, but all the decks in this format that could kill you could also pretty easily deal with a Gideon. There isn't like a Storm deck, for example. So if they're killing you, they're killing you with a giant creature and they could pretty easily just also kill the Gideon and then, you know, move on with this strategy. But the plus is very good. And it, it's a card I overlooked. I don't play it in my own cube because I don't like that worship effect. Oh, yeah. I kind of like Gideon Tribal. I run a, a whole bunch of those Gideons. I mean, I, I've had a lot of fun playing this guy in the Degenerate Micro Cube and I might consider him for my own cube as well. But um, but yeah, so that's why he ended up in there. And he's been really, really quite strong. And there's definitely like, you know, control is viable here where you just play all mono answers, right? Like mono counter spells, removal spells, discard spells, all that kind of stuff. And one or two win conditions and Gideon's a great example. And then some way to get that win condition back and get your answers back, ideally, like re recycle your graveyard into your library. And then your goal, your goal is just to kind of win that grindy game, right? When you get to the point where somebody's going to die because because they're getting their City of Brass, you know, Rashad imported, you're actually going to win because you have a 4-4 Gideon you can attack with every turn or whatever. It doesn't look like you're running Edict effects. Is that true? I mean, you talked about balance, but I don't see like black. There are a couple. So there's Liviana the Veil. Her, mm -hmm. She's in there mostly for her Edict effect. I mean, the discard is good too for other reasons here as well than in just a regular cube environment. And then we have Liliana's Triumph as the other Edict effect uh, in the cube. Oh yeah, right. I'd forgotten about. Yeah, it's basically just Diabolic Edict with a slight upside, but... There's two Lilianas and your deck's 15 cards, so it's not as hard to hit the upside here as it might be in other environments. And there might be space for another Edict. We've actually toyed around with that, possibly. So there might be another one in the future. I mean, I'm not saying you should. I, I don't traditionally like Edicts, but I don't traditionally like Edicts outside of exactly powered environments where you can do things like put Inkwell of Leviathan into play on turn one or whatever, right? And that's entirely the kind of thing you can do here. Right. I mean, this is the kind of environment where we had a game a couple weekends ago where my opponent beat me this was game one they correctly put me on the fact that edict would be my only out they were playing dark depths and they had the ability to make merit lage but they waited until they also had the also could cast their simian spirit guide just hard cast simian spirit guide because my opponent had figured out that my only way out of this bind was going to be to have an edict effect and so they stay sure enough they waited they cast their simian spirit guide for three mana and then they made merit lage and i'm like yeah you got me i have my Liliana's triumph that was the only answer and it's those kind of really 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 hyper specific narrow 
narrow plays that really matter in this environment. You know, that's kind of like a cute thing that you like. It's the kind of stuff that you can never really afford to play around in 40 card singleton. If you're playing 40 card singleton and you have, so you've somehow assembled dark depths, and even if you know your opponent has Liliana's Triumph in their deck, you can't afford to give them four turns to maybe draw into it when they hadn't drawn into it before or draw into some other answer or draw into a threat that can possibly rival your threat to play around the possibility they have Edith right now and play your Simeon Spirit Guide a couple turns later. Like, you just have to go for it, right? And there's so many decisions like that in a regular cube draft that here are totally inverted. It's like, actually, no, here you do have to care. Like, like you have Mental Misstep in your deck and you need to use that Mental Misstep on exactly their Swords to Plowshares in order for you to win. And so if you have to wait to draw your Mental Misstep to play out your threat that dies to Swords, then you just have to kind of sequence your plays that way. Um, and it's been very interesting to think about magic in that context where you have to think very literally about the cards in your opponent's deck and less abstractly about things like card advantage and board presence and tempo and just trying to like maximize these theoretical bars you're actually just thinking what are the cards in your deck what are the cards in mine how do i like almost like chess how do i negotiate this board state so that i my cards come out on top yeah it's super interesting to see the effects that you go deepest on your blue section is not only like half counter magic or something. I mean, that may be hyperbole, but there's a ton of it. But more precisely, it's counter magic that is or can be free, like force of will and force of negation and foil and days and the one mana effects like force spike and whatever. In black, you don't have the spot removal much. It doesn't look like you're not trying to trade one for one on the board, no. but you are. You've got every hand disruption spell that you can get your hands on, your thought seizes and your brain maggots and, and so on. Yeah, truthfully, if I were to run something like Doomblade, Doomblade doesn't kill a lot of the things you need to kill in this cube. There's a lot of indestructible stuff. There's Emrakul of protection from covered spells. So, so it's really the stuff like the edicts and the toxic deluges and the balances that can actually get around all that stuff to actually remove things. It's a funny kind of like chicken and egg situation where I've effectively made the protection on those cards less relevant because there are no spells that destroy creatures pretty much. I mean, there's a few. There's not none, but there are very few cards that destroy creatures. So indestructible means a lot less in this environment than it means in other environments because that line of rules text has dictated the card choices in the environment to make sure that these things are actually answerable. Something we've talked about that has not actually come to pass is uh, Sigarda. I believe it's Host of Herons. There's the Sigarda that makes it so you you can't sacrifice, your opponents can't cause you to sacrifice permanence, and she herself has hexproof. That card would actually be the most insusceptible card to removal in all of magic we could run in this cube. More insusceptible than Progenitus, more insusceptible than Emrakul, just because, you know, the balances and the edicts this protects you from, which none of those things have protection from, and there's so few other things that, you know, would kill uh, Sigarda, but don't kill, you know, Emrakul or whatever in this environment. Yeah, but we, we've even talked about, like, do we find room for this card? Like, <laughs> it seems like it shouldn't be good enough here, but there are some cards like that, right? Like, another good example is uh, is Judge's Familiar. So this is the hybrid, you know, white or blue 1-1 flyer that you can sacrifice to counter-target instant or sorcery spell unless its opponent, unless your opponent plays one, basically. It's caster pays one, which I had not seen in very many, you know, more typical singleton cubes at, you know, normal sizes because, you know, it's an onboard effect and it's just kind of a Nikki 1-1 and so like it ends up being fairly not impactful but in this environment leading on a turn one judges familiar is the difference between your opponent casting channel on turn one or maybe casting it not at all right because if you go judges familiar into Thalia into you know holding up Manatide or something uh, you put yourself in a position where now they just can't cast their one game winning spell because of this dumb little bird right that that ended up being like super important 
Andy Mangold has singled out the Sunrise Movement as the charitable organization that this episode supports. The Sunrise Movement does important work in tackling the urgent problem of climate change through both national organization as well as very local intervention. They have more than 400 local offices all around the U.S., making it easy to get engaged in person or through charitable donation. I am donating all of my ad revenue since my last podcast to the Sunrise Movement. Learn more at sunrisemovement.org. Another thing that's an interesting marker of just how vastly different this environment is from a more traditional draft environment is the unevenness of like the spreadsheet aesthetic thing. Yeah. And I'm all for uneven lists, but you've taken this to an extreme that I haven't seen before. So (laughs) at the extremes, you've got 25 blue spells, you've got seven green spells, right? So you've got, what is that, like four times as many blue spells as green spells? Yeah, it depends on how you categorize it, right? Because the way I have it categorized on Cube Cobra, all of the cheat targets are all not in their sort of respective color sections. You've got like World Spine Worm and whatever over there in colorless. Right. right? So if you're looking at actual like colors of cards, there are more green cards, but there are only seven cards that I expect you to use a green mana to cast. The first version of the cube actually was much closer to balance. It was never fully balanced. I at first was like, all right, what's the most broken thing each color can do? Let's get a little bit of all this in here and kind of play with it and see where it goes. And uh, poor green. I mean, green has just (laughs) every time we were making cuts to the cube, it was like, well, these green cards are unplayable and just cut, 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 keep going. And it just uh, it's been really rough. But yeah, green does not have much to do at this power level is what I found. Black and blue, I think, are the most obvious colors to have lots to do, right? Like we've got counter spells are essential. Black has all of the sort of proactive, you know, hand hate and that kind of stuff in addition to some really powerful combo pieces. So those, you know, colors are pretty well set. White as a like, you know, fair police for the deck, a kind of like hate bears color has a lot of powerful tools. Thalia is incredible here, as you might expect, as are lots of other sort of relevant hate bears. Though interestingly, we did find that the hate bears that were relevant were not the typical suite of hate bears. So like in this cube, we have Hushbringer and we have Aegis of the Gods, like these cards that I don't see in most cubes, but here they shut off entire combos and are very relevant. So anyway, white has that kind of identity and also lots of great removal in terms of your balances and, you know, that kind of stuff. Council's Judgment is very good. Exile is very good. Swords and Path. So white kind of has an identity. And then red and green were a little bit shaky and green just, you know, it ended up not doing much. And truthfully, right now, I think green is in a really great place because channel would be one of the best things that you can do in the cube, but it is a very big liability to put a double green spell on your deck and channel is green, green. And I think without channel green would not really have an identity here. Like you'd be no reason to draft green, no, no pull into it, but because channel exists and channel is such a broken, rude magic card, it is enough of a reason to play green and to try and figure out how to negotiate a deck that kind of plays in that space. I want to give a shout out to Scavenging Ooze too. Scavenging Ooze is amazing here as a card that, you know, shuts off combos, shuts off your opponent's recurring win conditions and turns off their grindy value engines and then also just kills them, uh, which is which is very potent. I didn't set out with the goal of making a dramatically twisted cube with like no real balance of colors. It just kind of ended up that way because this is a really, really, really cutthroat environment. A lot of cards just don't do anything here. It, it had to be, cards have to pass, pass a really high bar to, to get in. You shared a preview of the article with me that I'm referring to here. I like the discussion you had about the mulligan system and how mulligans attain a dramatically increased importance in this environment. I I wonder if you might talk about mulligans a little bit. 
I mean, so I should say mulligans work the same here as they do in other environments. Some people have uh, expressed that they should be banned or, <laughs> you know, modified so they are you don't get the London mulligan or whatever, because mulliganing when you're you start with half your deck in your hand is very, very good. It's very easy. It's, it's not difficult to draft a deck that has a number of outs to a turn one channel and then to mulligan to a hand that has a turn one channel and a channel threat. Yeah, because of that, you would think that mulligans are just broken and a problem, and it just makes the combo decks too good. But of course, that also means your opponents can mulligan to one of the many free counterspells they might have uh, to stop your turn one threat, or you know, mulligan to their own uh, turn one response balance. Right? We we had a game a couple weeks ago that where uh, the player on the play did in fact turn one channel out Emrakul, uncounterable, took an extra turn, swung at their opponent, and did fifteen damage. So their opponent sacrificed nothing because they hadn't even gone yet; they hadn't even played a land. So. <laughs> <laughs> the Annihilator 6 was irrelevant. And then their opponent untapped, played a land, and uh, played a Lotus Petal, and then played and cracked Aether Spell Bomb and put Emrakul back in their opponent's hand and then won because the opponent had no way to get their channel back and do it all over again. Oh, yeah, so nice. That can happen. And if your opponent has Aether Spell Bomb and a couple of pieces of fast mana in their deck, and you're both just you know playing this zero-sum game of mulliganing to your broken hands, then all of a sudden your actual card equity does matter and you can't afford to be down on cards. It also like mulliganing to a four card opening hand to get your turn one channel or whatever is really bad against a counterspell. You just get your, your channel counterspelled and now you have no resources left. So they didn't end up being totally broken, but they are here because your decks are so focused and they are so consistent. You have to mulligan to a deck that has, or to a hand rather, that has a plan. This is something that I hear people say about regular magic, especially constructed. I think a little less so limited. I think very rarely and limited even in cube do we get the luxury of mulliganing to a hand with a very cohesive plan. I mean, we want it to represent the plan of our deck, right? If we're playing to be aggressive, we want our cheap creatures or whatever. But for the most part, in cube or in limited, we're mulliganing to a hand with lands and spells we can cast in a reason reasonable ratio and that's a keeper that's a that's a keepable hand right here the hands you end up throwing back are sometimes preposterous like this hand is great the fact that i'm throwing back you know land land soul ring combo piece like i would never throw his hand back under any circumstances but i know my opponent is on mono hand hate and if they're just going to go turn one dark ritual into thought seize into agonizing remorse i just can't have all of my important cards in my hand so i need to mulligan into my brainstorm so i can brainstorm in response to that so i can put the important cards in my deck and leave the chaff for them to hit with their you know discard spells and there's all these extra layers to it Another one that sort of came up, you know, somebody was playing Oath of Druids. So this is a combo that some people do support in regular 40 card cubes and they really like it. I've always found it to be too inconsistent for my liking in a 40 card cube deck. I don't really want to build a deck that has no creatures except for these big cheat threats. And the only way to get them into play is one enchantment I have to draw a tutor for in a 40 card deck. But here, of course, 15 card deck, much easier to find that, much easier to find a forbidden orchard to give your opponent a creature to guarantee that trigger as soon as possible. And this is a great example of a deck that actively wants to mulligan. Like your seven has to be incredible in your Oath of Druids deck to even be worth considering keeping because if you mulligan, you will very likely be able to intentionally put your cheat target on the very bottom of your deck, which negates the chance of you drawing it before you can trigger your Oath of Druids and gives you the, the most opportunities to kind of make that work. Same with Tinker. Tinker is very similar. So so yeah, mulligans do take on a whole new dimension here. It's a, a, a kind of gameplay that, again, I am not familiar with from Limited. I, I've never played a cube where mulligans behave the way they behave in this environment because you have to mulligan with a very conscious nod to whatever your strategy is and your opponent's strategy. Mulligans in game two and three are way different than game one. Game one, you're like, all right, how can I do my thing as effectively as my deck can? Games two and three, you know most of your opponent's deck and you're like, okay, well, what could they have that would make this hand good or bad? How do I plan for that contingency and sort of mulligan around that? 
I wonder if you might talk about the cube size. Why is 160 the number? I mean, I understand that works out exactly in terms of packs, two packs of 20 at, at the table. Right. But you could make the packs a little bigger or smaller, of course, and still have the cube be bigger or smaller. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the truth is I inherited that from from Max and from his singularity cube and it worked well enough. And so I didn't really question it. I think when you draft 20 cards and have to build a 15 card deck, that's a pretty reasonable ratio of available pool to constructed deck size. Okay. We could make the card, the cube bigger, of course, and the decks would just be better because you'd have, you know, more picks and therefore you'd have, uh, you know, more cards to choose from to build your main deck. Or we can make it smaller and make the draft even more uh, important because you get fewer picks to build a functional deck. Yeah, truthfully, like, I, it just seemed to work pretty well and so I didn't really question that a whole lot. Um, and I will say anecdotally, from a practical perspective, I really, I have been building this cube in paper and I really like having a small cube. It's yeah. so small. It fits inside, like, a, you know, one of these, uh, one of these like you know long boxes here has got the cube and all the lands and all the tokens and plenty of extra space in it <laughs> yeah. uh, which is just very satisfying as logging a whole cube around can be kind of a nightmare but this you only need like eight of each basic land in this cube for a whole for a whole play group which is pretty fun yeah yeah that's cool would there be any advantage to changing the starting hand size would that make any sense like what if you played with a you know six card hand or something a five card hand i don't know I think it's all like a very valuable space to explore. I think I really do think it is. Um, I, I didn't hear because I, I do feel like there is a, a kind of inertia where I want to change as few rules as possible because the more rules changes there are, the more novel the environment is and the more people feel like it's foreign to them and they don't know what they're doing. And so really like the only rules change is just that you don't die from decking. Other than that, like your deck is slightly differently sized, but as soon as you start playing magic, you're just playing magic and there's nothing else to kind of keep in mind there. And so these are all knobs that could be twisted and if i if i felt like i hadn't stumbled onto this and you know all credit to max i mean max has not written extensively about uh the singularity cube and sort of the reasoning behind all of these number choices and it's entirely possible that he experimented with a bunch of different numbers and found these to be ideal i linked to his article in the sample article i sent you so you can kind of go back and read some of his reasoning but it, it kind of sounds like he kind of just like threw a hail mary and it worked out for him too but but for my goals like it ended up being perfect because you can build the flash combo deck you can build a shop stack that that was maybe like the the moment early on in this cube where it really like lit up for me because I, I love resource denial and stacks. Like it is just, I, I mean, honestly, it comports with everything I described about how I think about the world. I like the idea of just changing the rules slightly so every card you put in your deck is like worse now, right? All I did was make spells cost one more or whatever, and now all of a sudden your whole deck doesn't work the way it's supposed to. And that's a very compelling way to play the game to me, which is not socially acceptable in most commander. It's hard to pull off in, in most cube environments. And so it's not really a way I get to play very often. Just going, you know, turn one, uh, Mishra's workshop, Trinisphere is a great opening in this cube, the same way it is in Vintage. That's just a very compelling thing to me. And so when like Mishra's workshop was viable, it felt like, all right, this this environment has some legs. If I can go turn one, Trinisphere, turn two, Lodestone, Golem, like, you know, good luck, uh, have fun. Uh, it's just, it's very... Um, that's when I started getting really excited about it. And so, yeah, the, the size that we chose or the size that Max chose that I sort of started working with, everything I wanted to work just worked. I liked that discussion you had about your rationale going into this cube 
for designing a cube that supports combos that are too inconsistent in regular cube. I mean, you touched on this earlier in our conversation as well. I think you said you were talking to somebody about AB combos and why you dislike them. And part of the impetus for the degenerate micro cube is to make the AB combo functional because decks are so incredibly reliable and consistent and can be anyway with their 15 card deck. Yeah, and then there's just a bunch of like dominoes, right? A bunch of knock-on effects from, all right, if I want Oath of Druids or Dark Depths or whatever to be consistent enough that you can draft around it and plan on it every single time. Well, that also means you can do it really early, which means we also need this kind of disruption to keep up with how fast these combos can possibly be. And and from there, there's this unveiling of all these things where if you like follow all the sort of, you know, connected paths before you know it, you're running Serene Remembrance and you're like, this card is as good as Soul Ring in this environment, right? Like Serene Remembrance or Soul Ring, your deck might want one more than the other. And, uh, you know, it's it's which is funny because I think the the one drop cube is maybe in some ways a more novel environment from regular magic, right? Like you're still playing normal magic you're still you know casting spells same opening hand size same deck size or whatever really games in this i ended up as a sort of form of research going and watching a bunch of constructed vintage on youtube just watching streamers play constructed vintage matches because i had not watched much constructed vintage and wasn't super aware of the meta but it became very clear that these games played out a lot like constructed vintage because you had access to mishra's workshop you had access to turn one combos and so i just watched a bunch of games to see how they played out and it was eerily similar right it was like well our opponent played turn one trinisteria so we're not doing anything for the first four turns i hope we're not dead like let's see how this goes um obviously there are big things like you know we don't have storm here and that's a big thing in in vintage we don't have dredge here uh for a variety of reasons but that's a big thing in vintage but but still some of the decks did have a lot of similarities and so it, even though this is an environment that plays like vintage it's also an environment where serene remembrance is perfectly viable and you know so is memory's journey or whatever yeah, I've watched some of the Vintage Super League with uh, Randy Bueller commentating on it. That's been a lot of fun. It's been some years since I did that, but I don't know anything about the environment really either, but it's been fun to watch just a very different way of experiencing magic, starting with the fact that it's constructed magic, as you're pointing out, because I just hardly play constructed anymore. That used to be my main experience of magic, but we're talking more than 10 years ago, I essentially stopped playing constructed, you know, I've played nothing but limited since. Yeah, I've never, like I said, played Constructed in any kind of enfranchised way. I've played some like budget modern a little bit here and there. Uh, like I had a fairies deck I really liked for a long time just because I thought Bitter Blossom and... Uh, Spell Stutter Sprite was like the coolest combination of cards ever. Uh, but but I've never like followed a meta. And that's the thing is like, because I get so invested in everything I do, I, I, I don't get as much satisfaction from just dabbling in something as some other people do. Some people like just really like to build their kind of brew and, you know, show up at FNM and see how it does. And I, I just feel stifled by that. I'm like, no, no, tell me what the good thing is. I want to understand this thing completely and like get really into it. And I never had the budget or the the patience or, you know, to do something like that and get so invested in a constructed meta. I think it's a big hole in my my game honestly like if we're talking from a, from a spiky perspective like having never played a bunch of constructed and gotten really good at it it was it was a blind spot for me designing this cube like i said i had to talk to people that played more constructed eternal formats i had to watch streams and stuff to get a sense of how cards were evaluated and played sideboarding in this environment feels a lot like i think sideboarding feels like constructed which is something i've never really done i've never built a sideboard for a constructed deck so you know i understand you have these silver bullet cards and these different densities and depending on how good your main deck is against a certain archetype you might not need a silver bullet for and you're trying to like, you know, find this balance of cards. And that's what drafting a deck in the Degenerate Microcube is like. You need to, if you do have a big blind spot, you might need to take a card that is completely off color, but is good in that matchup. And in that matchup, you side into a whole different color deck because you need, you need that answer. You can't just play that matchup outright. It's exciting that you're releasing this article about it. 
I'm just excited to put the article out there because I want to share, you know, this has been a, a whirlwind for me this this entire summer and, you know, spring and fall now. I, mean, I guess it's November. I have been working quite feverishly on this cube and I feel like it has been eye-opening for me in all the ways we've discussed, like the, the fact that I'm thinking about magic in a different context, the fact that I'm thinking about all of the different unexplored space in cube that people have not trod on yet. And also, like, we didn't talk about this much, but the community aspect of this was huge. I never would have gotten as invested in this cube as it did if not for the incitement and enthusiasm of some of the other players that, that helped me with the cube, all of whom are credited in the article, I would not have been capable of getting this cube to where it is now without all of their input and playtesting. Like it's, it, it is not my cube in a sense. It is the cube that like we all worked on together because their input was essential. And without them playtesting it and pointing out things and without that additional human, you know, equity, just generating games and board states and drafts to like, you know, get more data about how things were going, it wouldn't have even been possible. And so I, I hope for everyone out there that you get the sort of, opportunity in your life as a cube designer to have a really invested play group because it makes a huge difference. And I mean, people were way more invested in this cube than anybody has ever been in my normal 360 unpowered cube, right? My play groups likes my cube. They're they're into it. They're happy to draft it. But yeah, their investment is very minimal compared to how people were really invested in this cube. It was a, it was a very fun experience. It was an experience where like, you know, things got kind of heated. Like I said, people get invested about magic. We had lots of extended, protracted, uh, heated discussions about Sheldock Isle and whether it was appropriate here or not. And <laughs> why or why not and you know there's people that are still have their feelings hurt that Sheldock Isle didn't make the cut and I understand why and so there was there was a lot to, to unpack but but like for all the reasons we've talked about like that's why magic is great to me right this cube was a framework for me to connect with these other people some of whom live in Europe some of whom uh you know lead very different lives than me or dramatically different ages or whatever who I would never connect with in any other way and we shared this dialogue about this cube which is a, again a proxy I think for a much bigger ideas that are, are harder to just discuss amongst strangers in, in polite society. So it was a very rewarding project. And I hope that that comes through in the article. And I feel like I get so much out of this game that I just want to share it with more people and get more people to the point where they're getting out of this game what I am getting out of it. And so I hope that this excessively long, uh, you know, navel gazing article about this degenerate microcube for some people gets them excited enough to make their own cube. A thing I appreciate about this cube is that it takes a radically different approach from approaches that I've typically taken in achieving a consistency of draft experience or achieving some like attempt at regularity in how a deck functions while at the same time trying to avoid the on-rails draft experience. Because I don't personally like constructing or playing formats that are like, here's elves tribal that are it's in green right. and black. So so you just take every elf that you see and then presto, you've, you've got a deck and it's going to be about the same deck every time. So clearly you've tried to avoid that. You've been successful from your playtesting, as you explain in the article. This is an environment that looks radically, radically different from the so-called cultic cube cube that I developed, but that one as well as one that's all about achieving a kind of consistency, but it achieves consistency within the confines of a more traditional 40 card, you know, limited deck building experience. I just have more variants of lightning strike and searing spear and whatever as some way of trying to do that. But I also, yeah, want to allow people to draft different kinds of decks, allow them to construct decks that have a plan that is they're going to very successfully be able to execute on in 
contradistinction to the Oath of Druids deck that you were mentioning as an example before, where in a 40-card deck, it's difficult, it's very difficult to make an Oath of Druids deck reliable. It's super sweet when it comes together, but when you got 40 cards, you got, you know, you got to find one card, you can throw some tutors in there, but that's a tough thing. So that has no place in my cultic cube environment that is trying for that consistency, whereas you can achieve it. You can put Oath of Druids in here, given that you're running the 15-card deck. So that's cool. This is a totally novel way of going about that that had never occurred to me. I like it a lot. Yeah, and then like the Oath of Druids deck isn't just one deck is the other thing that was kind of revelatory about this. Like even the most like the most narrow parasitic combo in the cube is probably like Dark Depths, right? Are you ever going to play Thespian Stage without Dark Depths? Probably not. But there even it's like it's parasitic, right? Um, we have a little bit of redundancy. Vampire Hex Mage is in the cube alongside Thespian Stage. So you have two ways to turn Dark Depths into Merit Lage. Hex Mage is playable outside of the combo, though not great. Probably a sideboard card you bring in if you see an important Planeswalker or something, or you're playing against a Hate Bears deck where the first strike is actually very relevant, which could be the case. But even in that case, right, so it's a very narrow parasitic combo, but it's just essentially one narrow card. It's Thespian Stage, because Dark Depths is, is the combo. That's the card that, you know, carries all the weight. And then Thespian Stage is this additional card that, you know, you need to run to make the combo work, but it's a single card in the 160 card cube. If you're trying to support something like, you know, Dark Depths or Oath of Druids in a bigger cube, we have all these other cards to try and make that combo come together and make it work that, you know, the actual like effective footprint of that combo is much bigger than just that individual card. You know, even something like Oath of Druids, like so Forbidden Orchard, which is obviously best with Oath of Druids and mostly played with Oath of Druids, is also totally fine for fixing your mana in a, a broken combo deck. If you're going to cast Emrakul on turn one off of channel, then you will happily play Forbidden Orchard to also be able to hold up a counterspell or, you know, lead with a duress into channel or something, uh, because who cares if they have a couple one ones? It will be completely immaterial. So that's actually playable otherwise. I mean, all of your oath targets are also targets for show and tell, they're targets for reanimator, they're targets for flash, or targets for all these other kind of cheat decks in different ways. And so I'm just fascinated by the decks that end up working because they sometimes the best decks look like a total pile. It's like, okay, you've got two combos and a 15 card deck and random pieces of off color disruption. But because you had two rainbow lands, which is the equivalent of having like eight rainbow lands in your like, you know, constructed deck, you have perfect mana, you can cast whatever you want. And this just kind of always comes together and always works. It's been very interesting to see the kind of decks you can draft in this environment. And, it, and like you said, I'm very proud of the fact that it doesn't feel on rails. Like I think it's kind of a cool discovery that you can actually draft these very potent combo decks, but because there's so many potent combo decks, a lot of the pieces overlap and it's not really on rails. Like a, a Dark Depths deck can be anything. That's a colorless combo that mostly uses two lands, maybe a Fex Mage. You get to stick those two lands into any shell of any deck. Are you like a control deck that uses Dark Depths as a win condition? Are you a Turbo Depths deck using Crop Rotation and once upon a time to get your combo out as soon as possible? Are you a hate bears deck that's going to win by putting a 2020 into play? Like all those decks are viable and they're all dark depths, right? And they could be anything. Can you give me a quick hit of a card that you found for the Degenerate Microcube that surprised you for being a card that you wouldn't have imagined to have been viable in this kind of environment? Emery, Lurker of the Lock. Two and a blue for a creature that when it enters the battlefield, you mill the top five cards of your library, and then you can tap Emery to cast an artifact from your graveyard this turn. And Emery also gets cheaper for each artifact you control to cast. So if you control two artifacts, you just cast it for blue. This was a card I was a little hesitant to put in because I felt like milling five was a potentially risky proposition. Because if you mill five and then your opponent kills your Emery, then you might have just robbed yourself of all future draw steps for the rest of the game. Uh, you know, 
know, and giving your opponent this big opportunity to kind of capitalize on it. And it's proven to be well worth its slot because first of all, there's a ton of cheap artifacts in this cube that are mostly disruption. They're mostly like hate pieces. So there's, you know, cheap grave hate in the form of, you know, stuff like scrabbling claws. There's cheap weird interaction like pithing needle and, you know, stuff like that. Pacification array is a totally viable card here because it's just a colorless card. Any deck can run that shuts down a lot of cheat decks once they have an answer for it. And so all these kind of toolboxy, you know, cheap artifacts are are good with Emery because you can buy back the ones you need. And the fact that you milled the ball when you put them into play means you oftentimes gave yourself a toolbox. Now you get whatever piece you need. It also combines with Aether Spellbomb, which is a card we mentioned that was a card that surprised me for being very viable here when I didn't think it'd be so viable as just a way to bounce a creature every single turn for a very low mana investment, which is very powerful. We've also found that just it's really powerful in the kind of shops Staxi decks because you can just cast Tangle Wire every turn <laughs> from yeah. your graveyard, right? Oh, that's and cool. just keep keep him locked under a Tangle Wire lock. Uh, Tangle Wire ends up being great here. Um, and Staring Bridge is an amazing lock piece that you can just keep buying back with Emery. So it's this card that buys back win conditions, buys back disruption, buys back lock pieces, and can augment all kinds of strategies to be like a very powerful little package uh, that has really impressed me. So that card's really fun to play with, and it's a card but it's definitely I did not expect when we first put the cube together to be as, as potent as it is. Yeah, works with your welder and tinker and that kind of stuff. That's cool. Absolutely. Andy, where can people get a hold of you? Where are people going to be able to read about the Degenerate Microcube, for example? I have a small website with some friends where we write about magic. It's called Lucky Paper, and you can find it at luckypaper.co. John, you've helped us out with lots of projects over there and always been a great champion and someone who's been very generous with sharing our links. So if you follow John, you've probably seen something on our website here and there every now and then. So check that out. I also have a podcast we record over there. We release, we talk about cube theory over there every week, and you can follow that. I would say go to Lucky Paper and, uh, and follow us over there. Go to Lucky Paper. Awesome. Andy's great. And yeah, thoroughly enjoying your podcast with Anthony. You all are doing great work. And he's written fine articles on Lucky Paper as well, of course. Well, thank you so much, Andy. This has been great. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. 